The African philosophy is something that's kind of missing, I think, a lot from the discourse. I wanted to kind of highlight it, just like the importance of us going back to um, Africa. Just because you're a hypocrite doesn't, it doesn't mean you're wrong. No, yeah. not, not just that it doesn't mean you're wrong, it doesn't remove the validity of the question. Mm. I think it's the issue of picking on Africa. We need to create a generation where there's so many young, bright leaders. Welcome to Afrolog Podcast, a platform for informed debate and discussion on African and the wider black community issues. Hello everyone and thank you so much for joining us today. I hope everyone can hear me okay. If you can, please just put a thumbs up. Um, we would like for those who are guests, um, apart from the guests who will be speaking to you today who would want to ask questions, um, please just indicate, raise your hand. I think you can do that and then we'll bring you into the conversation as well to do that. Um, today's topic and apologies for the meeting title. I don't know because I created like recurring meetings. It just it got a bit complicated. I need to figure out Zoom properly. But uh, I just want to say hello and welcome to today's discussion. It's our Black History Month series, the Afrolog podcast. And today we're going to be discussing all about um, African economic development. We're going to be looking at um, issues around uh, one central currency, particularly within West Africa. And we're also going to be looking at agribusiness. We're going to be looking at power generation and how all that relates to Africa's development um, today. Um, so we've got Elisha, who is who currently works with the AFDB, and he's joining us uh, to speak today. Um, Elisha, please, do you want to introduce yourself briefly to everyone who's joined? Excellent. Well, thanks for having me. My name is Elisha Sulai. I'm a Nigerian, born and raised. Um, I'm an economist by profession. I also have a media background. For the last 13 years, I've worked at the African Development Bank, primarily at the board level, where we provide oversight in what the bank does and approve all the projects the bank finances in all 54 African countries. Um, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we are glad that you're able to join us. And I'm going to ask Celeste as well to please introduce herself. Hi, everyone. Um, so my name is Celeste Orby. I'm actually Sierra Leonean, but I'm based in the UK. Um, I recently started um, an organization called Agri Afrique, which is basically an organization that encourages Africans living in the diaspora to engage and support African um, agribusiness. Um, and also we, um, we also are engaged in the food security effort where basically you're sounding out a Riley cry and asking more people, especially people in the diaspora to get more engaged in the food security effort in Africa. Awesome. Thank you, both of you. And I think it's great that we've got two people working in these organizations, all relating to, you know, agribusiness and agriculture and how that relates to Africa's economic development. Because I know the AFDB, it's one of the key things that the AFDB president at the moment is um, pushing for. And I guess just to kick off the conversation, um, I would like to ask Elisha um, what the bank's approach is in terms of agriculture and um, Africa's development? Well, thank you. Um, agriculture is one of the top five things that we do. Um, it's one of our high fives. And for the last five years, we've 
we feel that it's our mandate to feed Africa. Um, far too often, Africa imports too much grain from overseas. There's not enough processing of African agriculture produce. Africa is very good at exporting cocoa and other products and then importing chocolate refined products mm. at very high prices. Um, we're always at the short end of the stick. And so since 2015, the African Development Bank has thought of how to do agriculture differently. Um, we want to treat it more as a business. Uh, we want to do big agriculture and not just subsistence agriculture. Uh, we want to finance the, enti the entire value chain um, from production um, to processing, to distribution, and to storage. Because I don't know if you know, but more than half of what is produced in Africa goes to waste mm. simply because the route to market isn't there and the roads aren't there. And so in addition to production, our priority in supporting agriculture is also through infrastructure. Um, without the roads, you're not going to get the agriculture production at the levels you want it to be because the rural farmers wouldn't be able to take their produce to the market. And in addition, we also want to finance electricity. Mm. Without the power, you're not going to be able to process your agriculture produce. So we look at agriculture in a holistic way. We do the production, but we also do the supporting linkages, primarily through infrastructure. And with respect to the production, Africa cannot compete without technology. Um, so one of the things we've been doing in the past few years is we've been funding an initiative called the Technology for Agricultural Transformation in Africa. It's known as TAT. And TAT simply provides better seeds to farmers, drought-resistant varieties to farmers across the continent, varieties that can enable them withstand locusts. And we've been able to make a difference in that regard. Uh, the farmers we've produced or the farmers we've supported have had higher yields uh, in their production. And we believe that agriculture is the way to go through technology. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you. And I strongly agree with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why we thought it was um, important to have uh, this discussion today. So I just want to ask Celeste, in, based on you know, everything that Elisha said, has, has there been any part of your work that's also been involved in, for example, technology and relating to agribusiness or infrastructure, or is it mostly just like grassroots working with smallholder farmers or how is it currently at the moment? So for the most part, it's just been like, as you say, grassroots. But um, recently, um, we have been thinking about applying for an agri-tech um, grant, which is, and the idea behind that was, um, as Elisha said, um, so much of the um, post-harvest production goes to waste. And we've seen that um, there's a way to at least help to combat that. And um, there is a market for um, solar-powered refrigerators um, and freezers that we can provide to the farmers um, in rural um, Sierra Leone. So 
um, in rural parts of Sierra Leone. So we haven't started that project yet, but hopefully if we get the grant, that is something that we are going to be looking into with some Sierra Leonean, um, some Sierra Leonean stakeholders. Awesome. So one of the questions, um, and uh, I think it's very much um, relevant with what both of you have said, is the fact that, so I think last year it was, I saw that there was a partnership between um, Ivory Coast and Ghana with regards to the sale of cocoa to be able to add value to cocoa and be able to determine, you know, the prices that they're being sold for. Um, so that African farmers can get the best uh, out of out of the trade. Do you envision that there'll be more of such partnerships? And also the fact that a lot of our commodities, particularly in agriculture, the fact that they are um, priced um, using the US um, dollar, how does this impact? How, how really are we going to be able to kind of have like a sustainable industry and really gain as much benefit in the trade um, when we can't even determine the price of the commodity according to our own currencies. Well, if I, That's for both if of I, you, yeah. If I may take a stab at that question, I think Cote d'Ivoire is the biggest producer of cocoa in the world, and the second biggest producer is Ghana. And so I think together they produce slightly over half, I believe, of total uh, cocoa production in the world. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about time that they group together to form uh, what sounds to me like a little bit of a cartel mm -hmm. um, in order to get a fair price for their produce so that the, mar so that the farmers can um, benefit more and that so their countries can earn more foreign exchange from, from that. Um, but I must say that endeavor won't be without its challenges. Um, the global cocoa industry has other powerful players. Um, and these players are not in Africa. They are the commodity exchanges outside Africa that help dictate the price. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how successful um, this initiative by these two countries is in order to get a better deal. Um, the essence of coming together, however, is important. Um, Africa cannot uh, thrive unless it gets a better deal. And this is why it's important that Africa comes together with respect to trade so that it can bargain more collectively and more efficiently. Ghana can't do it alone, Cote d'Ivoire can't do it alone. The other cocoa producers can't do it alone, but if we can group together as African countries, then we could have more effective collective bargaining and we can get a better deal. And I think this is part of what the Africa continental free trade area wants to help us achieve. It wants to help us trade more with each other first so that it'll be easier for African countries to trade more with the rest of the world. Thank you. Um, yeah, Celeste, sorry, we're going to go. So I think it's a great idea and I think it's a, um, it's a step in the right direction. However, um, I, I don't see how um, 
how likely, I don't think it's necessarily likely that other um, countries are going to be able to benefit from similar agreements because as Elisha says, it does sound like a bit of a cartel. And like, if we think about like European Union law, like um, the formation of cartels are actually illegal um, when it when it comes to businesses. So the fact that um, Ghana and Ivory Coast have been able to do such and get away with it for um, this year, I think it's it's interesting. However, if it's successful, I think more countries um, that trade in commodities will be able to, you know. Um, join forces, unite and like set prices, hopefully, and that will help in terms of like economic economic development. So more farmers and more people that are actually selling like their raw materials can actually get more money because right now um, we don't, African farmers don't get as much as they ought to. And I know there's like free trade and there's lots of different um, arrangements that that um, have the goal of helping farmers to get more money for their produce. But right now it's a situation where like, it's almost, it's, it's not a good situation right now. So I think it's a good, it's a good step in the right direction, but I don't necessarily see how, I don't see the longevity of it because obviously um, it's, it's going to impact um, similar arrangements will impact the profits of organizations. Um, so I don't see people lying down and allowing it to happen um, for the foreseeable future. Sorry, can I can I just come in there because I think I know Oyin might want to talk about this later, but um, ECOWAS is supposed to be uh, a, a, a joint union of, of countries in West Africa, and obviously there are other smaller unions within the rest of Africa. Is this is that not such a model that could be legally used um, to enforce collective bargaining for countries that are close by? Um, I don't know is the answer. I don't know. I think, Elisha, I think the essence, I think the essence here is to sell the cocoa to those who demand it. And that's, you know, the, the, the markets in the West, you know, the Belgians, the Europeans. Um, so already Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana have trading relationships with Europe. Um, they've got economic partnerships agreements that they've all signed. Um, but these, these agreements tend to be one-sided. And so the only way these countries can thrive is to come together and set the price and try to see if they can succeed at it, you know, for, for the longer term. Um, the players though are more powerful than these two countries. Uh, the markets are more dynamic. So I don't, I don't see it holding out for that long, but um, let's see how it goes. My preference, though, is that instead of selling all the cocoa out there, why don't we develop an African market for chocolate? Yeah. Um, why don't we beneficiate the cocoa? Why don't we produce the cocoa in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana so that we could now sell it to South Africa and Gabon and Botswana, countries with, with, with rather deep pockets. Um, why don't we do that and create markets and then use the Africa continental free trade area that's coming into effect on January 1st um, to try to boost intra-African intra trade. I think this should be the focus and not necessarily just mm -hmm. selling cocoa to the rest of the world, 
um, and in, in doing so get a very raw deal for our farmers. This is, I think, what we should be focusing on in Africa. I find it quite, and I agree with you, Elisha, but I find it quite interesting that when we first started talking about Africa and Ghana's partnership that you both referred to it as cartels. And I find that interesting because in my view, and this is probably, you know, very rudimentary, I, I would have thought, you know, this is a, a step in the right direction in terms of encouraging synergy and um, especially within the cocoa market. And it's not foreign that, you know, countries who trade um, with the same commodities form some form of partnerships together. So it's quite interesting that, you know, within the African market that we would, look at it more as cartels rather than just you know synergy and strategic um as a whole i think cartels are not necessarily a bad thing um opec is a cartel and it's gotten oil producers a pretty good deal over the years um but as you can see with the oil markets it's hard now for opec to dictate the price simply because there are the players and it's the same with what's going on here. Unless you've got deep pockets, unless you're really organized politically and economically, it's hard to, for you to enforce what you want to enforce, which is why in the long term, I think Africa will only thrive if it creates more markets within Africa for its own goods. Yeah, I think that's a very, very key point. I think... Um, it's very important that, you know, we generate our own markets for ourselves and stop relying so much on, on the West. I mean, there are, what, 56 countries within Africa? You know, if we developed our own cocoa uh, industry and, and in terms of value adding, I think it would make a whole lot of difference. And someone has just posted that they want to know more about the African continental free trade area. Um, I don't know if any one of you wants to take a step at that. Um, I don't. I have a very rudimentary understanding of the free trade area, but from what I do understand is that because um, cu currently there are lots of like policies and lots of tariffs in terms of like trading between African states, but. Um, so the agreement is basically to remove that so that for the most part there's free trade so they don't have like so the removal of all these tariffs so it makes trading more it's make it makes it easier and cheaper for trade to be conducted between african states so then we're less reliant on trading with like europe or other continents because we're actually easily able to trade within um with intra-africa um, someone's just also posted um, that what are the impediments to a proper implementation of the AFCTA when it comes to agriculture? Well, it's in the chat. Sorry, Elisha, we can't seem to hear you. You're quite, you're a little bit quiet. I don't know what's happened with the volume. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. So basically, only 18% of African exports are into Africa. Um, Sorry, Elisha, it's gone quiet again. Um, I'm having problems with my, with my connection. I think it's maybe you're blocking the speaker on your phone or whatever device you uh -huh. Can you hear yeah. me now? Yes, much better. Is it better now? Much better. So basically, 
only 18% of African exports are intra-African. Um, compare that to Asia, it's 59%. And in, within Europe, exports are 69%. In Africa, it's only 18%. Um, so why is that so? It's because we trade more with the rest of the world. And it's also because tariffs are high to trade within Africa. Um, if you want to export to Ethiopia from Ghana, from Nigeria, the duty that you pay is a lot higher than the duty you would pay if you were exporting to the UK. So it just doesn't make sense. And then the other reason why there's not much intra-African trade is our countries are landlocked. 54 countries, over a third of these countries don't have any ports. So they have to depend on the neighboring countries to transport things. There are no good roads. So the infrastructure bottleneck just makes trade a very hard thing to achieve. Then the third thing is, it's literally impossible without it, without hassle to travel within Africa. You can't go to South Africa as a Nigerian without a visa. It's a pain in the neck. It's easier for a European to visit Africa than it is for an African to visit the rest of Africa. So what the Africa continental free trade area wants to do, it wants to create a single market for goods, and then it wants to remove the inhibitions that stand against our ability to travel within Africa. So far, all but one country has signed the, the, the agreement and about 15 to 20 have ratified. Um, enough countries have ratified it, but there are 54 countries. And as you can see, only less than half have so far ratified it. So that tells you that the ownership for the AFC, AFCFTA isn't as high as we would like it to be, but it's something we need to keep pushing. Thank you. Um, I think the key point for me, I think when, whenever we talk about, I've had conversations about the AFCTA is the fact that if, if we cannot solve the issue of um, traveling across within Africa, um, I don't know how effective trading will be when we still have these um, travel restrictions. But um, just to move on slightly, um, there's also the question which I kind of posed earlier, which is about being able to dictate the price of, uh, of commodities using our own currencies. Um, the ECOWAS countries, I think there's about 15 of them, um, have proposed a new currency called the ECO, which will be pegged to the euro. And part of this is motivated by the fact that a lot of countries within West Africa who use the CFA franc um, are wanting to move away from that, um, most of, mostly because of its colonial um, history. Um, and currently that currency is being guaranteed by France. And so it has actually been relatively stable over the years. Um, and so proponents of the ECO say that it will facilitate trade within ECOWAS. It will lower transaction costs and facilitate payments across 385 million people that live within the ECOWAS region. But people worry that um, Nigeria, which has the largest uh, economy across Africa, as, as well as particularly within the West African region, 
um, will dominate the monetary policy and that, you know, they will not be able to get the, the projected benefits from it. It was supposed to be launched this year, but that's not happening. And it has been postponed since 2003. Um, so now we're currently in 2020 and the reality of it is, is it really going to happen? Um, so in your views, what value do you think that the proposed new currency um, will be for Africa? Well, will be particularly for ECOWAS economically, and you can also relate that back to agribusiness specifically. Okay. Sorry, Dami, what do you want to say? Sorry, I don't know how to raise my hand on this thing. I don't know how to raise my uh, hand. Um, I, I think since you just click, I don't even know where to find it. <laughs> you just it? kind of... Um, yeah, I don't know how to do it on my phone. Anyway, someone, right. So, someone has their hand raised already, but um, okay, yeah, yeah. That, go, go, go for whoever can. Um, Jachi, Chimmy, and I think that's Chimmy K. Do you want to speak? Do you want to turn on your audio? Oh, there, there you say something. Jachi, do you want to speak? Okay. Um, when, Jachi, uh, where are you? <laughs> Should we just, um, I guess, carry on based on the question that I've just asked, and then um, he can come back, or she? Can come back. Yeah. So I think I think in theory, having a single currency in the Echo Estate is a good idea because it sort of it stabilizes currencies. So, for example, in Sierra Leone, um, um, one pound is equivalent to eight thousand leones. Um, and it just keeps increasing and it just keeps increase, increasing. Um, so it means that um, in terms of like, we do have produce, we like, we do have things that we would like. So for example, I'm exporting or, um, um, teas from Sierra Leone into the UK, but because, but so I'm able to get so much money, I'm able to, um, it's very, very lucrative for me, but in terms of like the from, um, the Sierra Leonean farmers or the Sierra Leonean agribusinesses that are selling it to me, it's not so good, especially because the, um, we're trading in pounds and the, basically they get, they get hot, what I'm basically trying to say is that the current, the value of the currency is very, very weak. But um, I think if we have like a uniform currency, it just makes it easier. And the value of the currency and the real benefits for an individual increases because like the value of the currency will increase, especially right now if the, the, the currency is so inflated and it's so um, devalued. So I think it's definitely a great idea to have a single um, um, currency. Elijah? I think that part of the reason why they haven't made progress in getting to the echo is there's a there's what they call convergence criteria. Um, common currencies work when um, the economies converge towards each other. In other words, you know the fiscal deficits of countries have to be closely aligned. They have a target of five percent of GDP which they've hardly ever been able to achieve. The exchange rate have to be a little stable, which doesn't really happen in Africa. Um, the, the, the import cover in reserves has to be more than three months. And as you know, our countries tend to be cash strapped. So it's very hard for the countries to converge macroeconomically. 
And if they don't converge macroeconomically, there'll be a lot of imbalances, which would make a, a single currency hard to, to, you know, to implement. So which is why they haven't been able to achieve the echo and they've been postponing. What they did, what they decided to do though was, as you know, there's already a single currency with the CIFA, with the West Africa franc. Um, a lot of the Francophone West African countries use the CIFA. And so they were wondering if the Anglophones would converge together first, at the same time as the Francophones are converged, and then later both groups can converge into one. The Anglophones are also not as convergent with each other. And COVID has made things even worse. It's thrown our economies into whack. We're all running deficits up to the wazoo. And so the presidents have decided that now is really not the time to move towards the echo. And many even think that we won't even be ready in five years. So what do we do between now and the next five years? I think the, the essence now is for us to rebalance our economies. Um, to get our economies growing again. And it's only after that that you can think about convergence. So for me, I don't think the echo is going to happen anytime soon, if we're lucky in a decade, but I wouldn't wager any money on that. Thank you. Um, Dami, you had your hand up. Yeah, the, I think... Um, I was going to mention the, the criteria and the convergence criteria, and I think the the example to note is that of the European Union, um, because of this big argument that that um, emerged between uh, essentially the Mediterranean and Northern Europe about deficits and spending, and culminated in the, um, the Greek bailout and people in Greece now hating the European Union because of the regulations about um and spending and reducing the deficit so i think that is important but there's also the the geopolitics of the interest of france to look out for as well um because of the the divergence between the ecowas um and the cfa france are, are not really interested in in having uh, a unitary currency in west africa that isn't that that comes outside of um, French influence. So I think that is something that should be considered also. Political interests are pretty big. Um, to be fair to the French, though, this time around, Macron said, look, um, we are going to let you guys have the echo. Uh, you don't have to put your reserves in France anymore. And we're going to let you control your monetary policy. Um, when Macron said that, Watara took it and ran with it. Um, I think the Nigerians and the other African, West Africans felt Watara was going a little too fast because he was going ahead of what they thought was what was agreed, which was everyone was meant to converge at the same time. Watara was said to have unilaterally uh, announced the echo prematurely before the others agreed. Um, so there has been some political debate on this in recent months, but I think COVID has changed all that. I think before we're going to be ready for the echo, 
will be a while to go. And we, we, we should really just prioritize getting our economies growing again, um, getting us back to fiscal balance and, um, you know, restoring our exchange rates and monetary policy to where they should be before we think about common currency. I absolutely agree because one of the questions that um, people have voiced in, I guess, not necessarily against the echo, but about their worry with the echo is the fact that do we actually have enough to trade? Um, like, is, Af is West Africa producing enough to trade within ourselves, not just commodity wise, but in terms of value addition wise? So are we, <laughs> you know, are we? are we at a point where we're able to create a sustainable market of different things beyond oil, beyond cocoa um, within that region? I think, um, I think the answer is yes, because a lot of um, entrepreneurs are rising from Africa. And although we do need a lot more factories, we do need a lot more organizations yeah. that actually add value to um, our raw materials, but that is on an increase. Um, but definitely, they do need. Yeah, that was in there. Yeah, there we do. Sorry, can you mute yourself? Whoever's sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. definitely do need um, more policies that enc encourage entrepreneurship and add in value um, to our raw materials before exporting them. But I think um, we do have things to trade. Um, we obviously we have oil, we have cocoa, we've got um, we've got coffee, we've got teas, we've got we've got a lot of things. But yeah, we do need to add value to what our natural resources, and we do have we definitely do have. I mean, um, sixty percent of the world's arable land is in Africa, so that is that is something that is a huge deal. Um, but what we need to sort of um, prioritize a bit more is that entrepreneurship flair, which is on the rise, but we. We can't there is room to see a lot more of that but I'm really encouraged in terms of like the I speak to so many entrepreneurs that are based in Africa that are tapping into like um diverse markets that are diversified I, I think it's good obviously in Nigeria they have the oil um and we have different natural resources but we need to diversify what we are actually exporting out of Africa but I do think that um we do have things to trade definitely 100% I think I think there's a while to go before we, you know, begin to really trade effectively with each other, um, simply because we shoot ourselves in the foot. Um, if I'm producing cement in Nigeria, um, it's going to be hard for me to, to export it to Benin Republic, which is right next door, um, simply because the Beninois authorities don't want the Nigerian cement flooding Benin. And it's going to be even harder to take it to Togo for the very same reasons. And so we talk about intra-African trade, but then our politicians, our policymakers, make it very difficult. And to be fair also, I can also be a little harder on Nigeria. Um, we talk about the Africa continental free trade area and the Nigerians shut their borders and everyone else in Africa is like, what's going on here? You're talking about signing a free trade agreement and you're shutting the borders and shutting the borders makes it difficult to import goods. Now the Nigerians will say they shut the borders because they 
they're trying to control crime. There's a lot of smuggling going on and they need to nip it in the butt. The point I'm trying to make is we sign these trade deals. We all want the common currencies. Uh, we want to create a market for ourselves. But then the reality of politics makes us move two steps forward and one step back. Absolutely. Thank you. I, I think I share those sentiments. Dami, do you, you, raise, you have your hand up. You're on mute, by the way. Um, I know we want to go on to other things, but uh, I wanted to raise this point about the WTO and the candidacy of uh, Nigeria's former um, finance minister. What do, I mean, I, I read an article which which suggested that um, Mrs. Okonjo-Iweala would have a lot of latitude to promote uh, African trade um, as head of the organization and even promote avenues to exporting to European countries. Um, but um, I spoke to someone who, who, who was kind of skeptical about the idea. So I just wanted thoughts on whether that would be like a positive thing for African countries to have an, an African woman at the head of the organization. Or whether it wouldn't make a difference at all. I think it's, it's, well, for an African, I think it's good to see an African superwoman um, heading a global organization. Um, so we're, you know, we're praying she wins and she wins big and we're praying she succeeds. My concern though, is that given that Africa contributes very little trade in the world, um, she may not be able to make that much of a difference for Africa. Um, and also given that the China, India, um, she may not be able to push the envelope too much for us, but her being there gives us a slightly bigger voice and the bigger voice we could have, the merrier. So, I mean, we, we just pray she wins and we pray she succeeds. I think also bearing in mind everything that's going on um, that we've seen on social media within uh, Nigeria um, as well as the Congo, uh, particularly with Nigeria's uh, protests and the basically what's been going on in the Congo for years and years and years regarding you know the, the extractive um, industry there. Um, what I feel like politics, the politics of these areas is definitely going to define how the economies of this area develops. We're seeing in Nigeria, if the protesters get what they really want, I think it's going to transform the governance system in, in Nigeria totally. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot more accountability. And so what sort of, do you feel like this will inspire more sort of, um, I guess, rebellion against the, the political elite across Africa? Do you think it's something that can happen in Sierra Leone, for example, or and, and elsewhere? Hmm, that's a good question. I think um, if the protesters, protesters in um, Nigeria definitely get what they want, then definitely 
um, it won't stop there. I think it definitely will transform governance and it will trans um, transform the political system. And I think that will spread across Africa in terms of people won't stay, like, for, so for example, in Sierra Leone, um, we rarely get protests i mean recently um there have been some protests because of like the rape the rape rape is going up like you yeah so rape is going up people are protesting against that um but since i i'm 28 years old and that's the only this is the only protest i've ever heard of in sierra leone ever because people don't we don't protest we complain behind closed doors about um you know um, politics politicians what they're doing but no one will ever um few people will actually ever speak up but if they see um what happens in nigeria um when they end stars when they end all of these other um offshoots of stars um and people start actually speaking up and the younger generation actually do take a stand for what is right and you know do demand good governance um that will definitely um spread across africa and we will see hopefully Maybe I'm being optimistic, but um, we will see some positive change in that regard. Lasha, do you have anything to add? I think I'm actually in Abuja. Um, been here for the last three days and before that for the last two days in Lagos. Um, I mean, that's the big topic right now of discussion. Um, a lot of there's a little bit of frustration, a lot of frustration, but to be also fair to the government, um, they've taken steps to reform the police. Um, the protesters though believe that um, this shouldn't just be another promise that's not fulfilled. So they're not really wanting to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, mm. I think there's a lot of yearning for change. Remember Nigeria has a population that's predominantly youthful. Um, I don't know what percent it is, but a larger chunk of the population is under the age of 30. It's about 60 and to 70. 60, yeah. 60 yeah. yeah. Yeah, there you go. So the youth want a better deal. So they're channeling their voice in the way they can using social media. They're head of the government in this regard. What concerns me, though, is our economies are reeling from COVID. Um, many African countries aren't gonna grow this year. Um, this is a challenge that's not just the fault of the government. It's an, it's an exogenous shock. COVID wasn't manufactured in Africa. And many Africans may not, African countries may not be able to handle this. And so you may begin to see protesting, you know, civil issues, driven not necessarily by you know police brutality alone but simply because folks are unemployed underemployed <sighs> they've graduated for years without jobs and covid is going to make it worse and our countries really need to find a way to cope they can't do it alone they need to do it together and they need the help of the rest of the world i mean some would argue like all the more reason why the government ought to actually be taking action to what people are protesting for. For example, in, in, and I think the case of the Congo is a very serious one because it's one that has been going on for decades and everyone's been aware 
of you know the short end of the stick that the Congolese people get especially when it's their resources that are being extracted and in our phones and in so many different devices I think if we if we use the organization of the Nigerian protest example as an example um I would say it's a great opportunity for governments to actually tap into the 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 speed you know the accountability and the level of knowledge that exists within the population to be able to kind of move forward and build the economy rather than trying to suppress that it's almost as if you know they have almost like a fear of things actually working um at the moment because we've seen a helpline we've seen legal services legal aid services prop up within a week you know in nigeria so why why isn't this why is it something that the government is afraid of rather than something that they should embrace that would have a significant impact i think on the on the economy despite covid i think that there are many within the government that want to see reform taking place faster than it's taking place and this is a, this is an issue across africa um but then there are also you know political economy issues vested interests that may not necessarily be in tandem with making haste when it comes to reform so um countries tend to muddle through these events and the countries that succeed and make something out of these popular uprisings are those who actually make deliberate painstaking decisions not necessarily in haste but rather slowly um i hope that nigeria comes out of this better off and my hope is that the protesters also act a little responsibly in as much as the government also exercises restraint so it takes i think two to tango uh we don't want to get we don't want these things getting violent because if they do get violent then it's going to be hard for us to achieve the outcomes from them that we all want to see thank you i don't know if anyone else um within those who have, have dialed in who wants to chip in to this conversation before i move on feel free to unmute yourself now um if you if you want to i'll give us a couple of seconds yeah i agree with what's been said but i think i don't i i no longer feel like the the, the protesters have a, a duty to be responsible i think the protesters have been let down mm. their whole lives most of them as the young people and whatever steps they feel they need to take they should take them and they should be entitled to i share those sentiments too <laughs> if i'm being honest um yeah but i mean i think it's definitely a slippery slope um for sure um i don't know if anybody else wants to add something before i move on to i guess uh yeah maya maya posted something maya do, do you want to talk or not if you want to talk you're on mute Okay. So, on the topic of conflict, um one thing I wanted to ask was regarding the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. This is something that we've spoken on about on the podcast in 
a couple of episodes back regarding um, Ethiopia's plans to build this dam, which is well underway, but there have been some conflicts between Egypt and Sudan um, because of, I guess, the issue is around water, essentially, and um, how this is going to impact access to water for Egypt as well as the Sudan. Um, given the potential conflicts that will arise from this and the fact that Africa has a capacity to produce uh, electricity through other means such as solar, wind, and, and so on and so forth, why do we still stick to, you know, using dams in the 21st century? I mean, we've seen that dams can actually do the opposite in terms of um, sustainability and it can lead to you know, different um, issues uh, in terms of natural disasters. I find it, while I do think that, you know, Ethiopia is within their right to do whatever they need to do to power their economy, I find that there are other, te other technological advancements that we could tap into. And so what's the reasoning really behind the dam? And, and I just feel like it, it will just continue to increase conflicts um, within the zones. I don't know if you both have any thoughts on that. I think that for Ethiopia, the dam is of strategic, almost existential significance. Mm. Um, and I don't know if you know, Ethiopia is one of the only countries in the world that has grown at uh, consistently at between eight to 10% uh, for the last 15 years. Uh, apart from China, very few other countries have done that. So they have an, a phenomenal growth rate. And in their planning, that the power from that dam is existential to them. The dam is also existential to Egypt because the dam is the, the Nile. So if you dam in Ethiopia, the water pressure there in Egypt is going to be lower. So it's existential for both countries. Um, for Ethiopia, the dam is the only way they can have baseload electricity. Um, baseload electricity is a constant large source of power that's not subject to the vagaries of, you know, the weather. Um, hydropower is baseload electricity. Solar power isn't easily baseload electricity because if you if you capture the power, you have to store it. And storage isn't that easy. And solar power isn't easy to drive industry. Solar power can turn on your light bulbs at home in the evenings, but you can't power a factory and grow your economy in an industrial way that Ethiopia wants. So for Ethiopia, the dam is very existential. Um, luckily, diplomacy has been working, not fully, but to some effect. Mm. Um, there hasn't been open warfare between Egypt and Ethiopia. And we hope that they can find some amicable solution to this. Um, I must also say that some other African countries have a sympathy for Ethiopia. Uh, Sudan does to some extent and other neighboring countries believe that the Ethiopians have a right 
to dam in order to have baseload electricity. Um, I'm a huge fan of solar. I think we need to go green. At the same time, I also think that we need to use the power supply that we have to our comparative advantage. So if you're Ethiopia, it's the Nile. If you're Congo DRC, it's the Congo River, which they also have plans of damming the Congo River and producing enough electricity to power the whole of Southern Africa. I also believe that if you are Morocco, you can use solar to some extent. The Sahel can use solar because it's very rich in sun. Oil producing countries, gas producing countries, Nigeria and Mozambique should use gas, which is still cleaner than diesel. Um, the Southern Africans have coal. Believe it or not, I think they should still maintain their right to produce coal. Yes, coal is polluting, but Africa pollutes very little. And Africa cannot produce and develop without having consistent energy. So that's why I believe that the Ethiopians should build their dam and the South Africans should burn their coal. It's a little controversial, but we're not going to grow and we're not going to become anything consequential with our energy. Um, there are too many Africans without electricity and without us using our comparative advantage, we're not going to move forward. Thank you. I think those are really good points, actually. Um, before I weigh in, I don't know if Celeste wants to or if anybody else actually wants to, please feel free. Oh, sorry, Celeste, please. No, I think the one thing that I would say to weigh in is, um, I think, although, yes, it is controversial that um, certain countries shouldn't be using coal, but I think with the West, they've had the Industrial Revolution where they were allowed to use us, burn up as much fossil fuels and damage the earth, not damage the earth, but... Um, it is. They damage the ozone layer. Basically. Yeah, contribute towards, um, you know... Yeah, just just trying to be just trying to be co politically correct here, but um, <laughs> but um, yeah. So I think we need to in Africa. We also need to develop, and we need to use what is in our arsenal. And if it's coal, if it's hydroelectricity, um, if it's um, solar or wind, whatever whatever we have, I think we should be given opportunity to use what we have to you know um, better ourselves instead of always having to rely on handouts etc. So I definitely think we. We, we, we are well within our rights to use the resources that we have. Thank you. Dami? I wanted to talk about how they found it. Um, the Grand Ethiopian Resistance Dam is the largest dam in Africa. Renaissance. I believe. Um, yeah, that's what they called it. So, oh. I mean, as Elisha, oh. was, as Elisha was saying, it's not just... Uh, an economic development project. It's also a project of national pride. Um, and it's supposed to reinvigorate their economy for the next um, um, 50, 100 years. So uh, they funded it using patriotic bonds, which essentially is a, a, a national crowd funder. And mm. people forfeited um, part of their salaries for a month um, everyone in the country so that they could 
so that they could build the dam. Um, and I think that's a beautiful way of, of funding such a large, expensive project. And um, it, it reminds me of what we were just talking about um, in Nigeria with protesters funding their own um, legal assistance, funding their own ambulances, funding their own um, food and drink for protesters, funding their own security, their own um, toilet facilities and so on. So that's something that I'm very keen on is to promote this self-sustainable, um, self-empowered funding mechanism because we do have the power when we look to ourselves. Absolutely. Um, anybody else um, who's on the call who wants to add anything from any part of the conversations that we've had so far, please, please, please do feel free to unmute yourself and say something if you want to. Okay. No, I guess not. So I think that's basically all um, I plan to cover today. I think it's been a very, very, very good conversation. Um, I've learned quite a lot. Um, thank you so much, Elisha. And thank you so much, Celeste, for joining us today. Um, I don't know if you guys have anything more to add and before I wrap up. The only thing I wanted to add was um, Africa needs a shot at, at grasping the future, but it can only do so if it gets through COVID. Mm -hmm. um, our, our economies are reeling, um, but this is not a time to, to waste a, this crisis. Um, we have a shot at reforming our economies at reprioritizing what we spend on um, and becoming more efficient. That's the way to take us out of this crisis and into the coming boom. Absolutely, thank you. Yeah, I mean, do you know what? I think, I, I think, Elisha, you might be placing too much, um, too much emphasis on, on COVID there because I look at African countries and I think, um, okay, no, African countries haven't dealt with things as well as we've seen in Scandinavia um, and Japan and New Zealand and other places. But, but there's still, there's still been, um, for example, this tendency to, to go out and participate in mass protests regardless of the situation. Um, we know that governments still have money to spend. Um, it's just about how it's allocated um, so my feeling is definitely that regardless of Corona, there's still that chance for economic development, regardless whether Corona... Demi, you're mute. Demi, you're mute. Yeah, sorry, I yeah, finished. Sorry, I, I thought I was, I'm I echoing. Would, I, echoing. I don't know why I'm echoing. Yeah, I'm not sure why either. Okay. Um, Elisha, did you want to respond to I mean, I think, I think you're right. Uh, there is still revenue, but I'm, I can also tell you, having looked at some of the numbers, some African countries are earning this year less than half of what they earned last year. And that's money that should be spent on education, agriculture, infrastructure. And you know that when the government doesn't spend in many of our countries, uh, people don't get employed. Um, so this is partly what you're seeing 
And the cash crunch is something that needs to end. African countries need to get new sources of revenue. They need to move quickly to plug the fiscal holes that, they, they, that they're in so that more people don't suffer and more people don't get back into the cycle of poverty. A lot of people got out of poverty in Africa in the last decade. This is not the time for us to reverse the gains that we've made. I think um, just to echo slightly what Elisha said and just to add what my thoughts are in terms of what us Africans in the diaspora should be doing. Um, as we've just heard, um, some of African countries are only getting up to half of the GDP that they got the, in the previous year. And I think in, um, in light of this whole Black Lives Matter movement, I think where, I think where, um, sorry about that. I think um, we also have a responsibility because where are most of the black lives? Most of the black lives are, are on the African continent and then there's black lives in Brazil and there's black lives not just in the countries that we are. So I think a way in which to economically empower our, um, our African brothers and sisters that are on the continent, because they suffer, I know everyone's kind of like struggling at the moment, but um, I dare say that they're struggling a bit more than we are. Um, I think was to like help them in terms of like buying the produce, try to choose bit, um, um, made in Africa produ um, products because they're good quality and you're not, you're not just helping like big corporations get even bigger. You're helping, um, you know, like a small family or you're helping farmers like actually um, be able to, to grow and like maintain their livelihood. So I think let's just be a bit more mindful as to how we spend our money. Um, so it's great that we're supporting black owned businesses in U Europe or in America in response to the black, Live, black, black Lives Matter movement. But let's actually take a more wholesome approach to the black lives that we're supporting. And also in terms of like thinking strategically as to how we want to help rebuild Africa. So obviously there's like a brain drain. There's lots of people, there's lots of qualified young professionals that are African of African descent that don't live in Africa, but um, maybe start thinking about what you can do, whether directly or indirectly, whether it's in agriculture, whether it's in infrastructure, whether whatever it is, start thinking about maybe do you want to move back to Afri Africa or how can you actively help Africans whilst whether directly or indirectly as I said already um to grow because we should like we have to help each other um, and think a bit and think a bit more intentionally as to how we operate and more strategically but yeah that's what I think thank you I think that's that's a, an amazing point to to really raise um and I hope that's something that we can all take away from the discussions today um, thank you so much for that, Celeste. Um, thank you. Um, so I think we've basically come to the end of it today. Thank you so much again to Elisha and to Celeste um, for joining the discussion and providing, you know, very, very insightful views. Um, I will be sharing this recording at some point <laughs> once, um, once, you know, I edit it and whatever that's necessary. Um, for our Apple podcast, as well as um, those who want to rewatch the, the video recording. But thank you again for everyone for joining. Um, 
and please and also sure please leave your social media in the chat so we can tag everyone yeah. um either sure. instagram or twitter thank you and please do follow us on apple podcasts google podcasts wherever you listen to your podcasts where afrolog podcasts um and follow us on twitter and instagram as well at afrolog podcast thank you everyone next week we're talking about um africa china relations absolutely um we're having some very very interesting speakers from black liberty china um and i think it'll be a very interesting conversation as well so please do make sure to join and tell a friend tell a friend <laughs> All right. Excellent. Thank you. Well, you guys are you guys are up to something, um, and everyone has a platform. Yeah. I think you're using yours, and I think that's the way to go. So, in whatever way I can be of help going forward, I'll be happy to. Thank you. We're happy to hear that. We'll definitely take you up on that. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye.